Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The biblical system proposes hyperbole, scandal, and logical contradiction as a means to disassemble the statues and false gods we construct in our minds. At the same time, hearers of the Bible tend to rationalize these tensions away, explaining to themselves and others what Jesus really meant. Yes, the Bible is a language of metaphor, but on the whole, far from pacifying us, those metaphors are given to amplify the Bible's attack on our egos. Besides, as we'll learn from Mark, sometimes an eye of the needle is just an eye of the needle. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 142 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The other day at a party, Richard and I were having a conversation, and people found it very entertaining because we were going on and on and on about the eye of the needle. It is one of the most interesting things to me, culturally, socially, that you have something so clear and so blunt, in fact, that I swear my father wrote this parable and it was inserted into all of the different synoptic gospels. This is exactly how a bulos would phrase it, with obvious hyperbole. You have a tiny hole and a giant truck, and you cannot fit a truck through the hole. But yet, when people read this same story in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, these three texts, they always come to the same conclusion. There must be a rational explanation because God couldn't really be saying that a rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, while we're going to criticize people who explain that the text is metaphoric and take everything literally, we're going to choose to take this as metaphor because it suits us. Jesus took the biggest animal he had ever seen (laughs) and the smallest hole he had ever seen, and that was the point. Take the smallest hole you can possibly imagine. Okay, now in your mind, fit the biggest thing you can possibly imagine through that hole. Now, try and fit a red dwarf sun (laughs) through a benzene molecule and see how well you can get those through. Dr. Benton, you have to understand that the sun can go through a catharsis and shed itself of its excess energy and make itself infinitesimally small. I'm afraid that a white dwarf still can't get through a benzene molecule. Sorry, it still doesn't work. No, no, but are you sure about that? Oh, with God, all things are possible. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. It's fine. It means that God can destroy the rich man. That's what he means when he says all things are possible. It doesn't mean that he can make a camel fit through the eye of a needle magically. That's not what the text is saying. So let's dive in and resist the temptation to do too many eye-of-the-needle jokes. Of the three pericopes, we're going to focus on Mark today, 
just because. And we're going to start with verse 13 of chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I think it's important to start with this passage, even though we're going to be talking about the eye of the needle, because it gives some context of what Jesus is trying to teach. One thing I don't hear people emphasize in this, he was indignant and said to them, Jesus was upset with the disciples. He was not creating a children's sermon here. This was not sweetness for the sake of the children. He was angry at the disciples when he says, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. O ye wicked disciples of mine. That the disciples were self-righteous because they thought they were going to be the gatekeepers for who came to Jesus. And Jesus wants the children to come And the reason why the kingdom belongs to them is because children don't care about right or wrong in an abstract sense. They care about obedience. What am I going to get in trouble for or not? And so good and bad are not categories for them. There's trouble, not in trouble. Those are the categories. Therefore, it's obedience, disobedience, and rebellion. This is why in the Pauline epistles, the Roman household is functional for scripture. This is why in the Byzantine and the Latin traditions you call the teacher father, because it is a presupposition of the school that in order to be a student, you have to become like a child. And that's why American Christianity is collapsing, because everybody comes not as a child. Everyone comes to church as a teacher. And they self-justify. They explain that they have education. They have experience. Well, only an idiot would think that the people in church don't have education and experience. But we're not here for the people in church. We're here for the teaching, for the master. And this is why Jesus loves little children, because little children don't think about what they know when they see their uncle or their dad or their mom or someone they love who they respect and look up to. They don't think about what they know at a young age They just think, I love this person, I trust them, I want to learn from them, and even if this person gets angry at me or scolds me, I'm still going to listen. Children are open, they're obedient, they're trusting, and they're non-philosophical until they reach the tweens. They're unformed. They are still looking for formation. And the disciples show that they are not open to formation. They want to form others. And this is the problem. The disciples do not submit to Jesus as the only teacher. They now want to be the one who decides who gets to the teaching and who doesn't get to the teaching. I mean, in Mark, they're discussing who sits next to Jesus when and where for what purpose. The children aren't asking that question. That's the key. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. So we're talking about children, and now we're shifting gears. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this passage, this particular admonition, occurs in all three instances of this parable in the New Testament. And it's important because the children 
humble themselves before the master. The adult comes and explains that he's good and explains that he's good in a socially acceptable way. He's trying to butter Jesus's bread. Good teacher. But you can't call Jesus good. Who do you think you are? Jesus is good, Father Mark. No, who are you to say what Jesus is? Are you his judge? Can you say he's good or bad? In other words, from the beginning, you are self-righteous. And the rich man is presupposing in this story that he is good. That's his starting point. A child doesn't go to his father and say, good father. He says, father. Because the role of the father is functional. If he's the teacher, it's functional. Meaning, he's going to teach and form you. But once you add good, a child who says, good father... Again, like you say, Father, what right does the child to say to his father whether the father is good or not? Doesn't matter. The fact that you're alive shows that he's good, and he knew that before you were able to know anything. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, whom God in Psalm 2 set on his mountain Zion to crush all of the other kings, tells him, Stop talking about me! You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. I like the last one because it's always, always included in these lists in the New Testament. And it's the one commandment that not only have we thrown out in the United States, but now we have to listen to religious thinkers explain how to be religious you have to reject your parents, which is a rejection of the Bible. Now Jesus is laying it out for him in plain language the commandment is good. You know what the commandment is, so why are you buttering my bread? If the rich man knows what the commandment is, why is he coming and asking what to do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's two possibilities. One is, the rich man doesn't know. And so, Jesus has to give him a remedial lesson in the Ten Commandments. Oh, you don't know what it takes to inherit eternal life? Oh, let me tell you. Here are the things. Or... The rich man is playing Jesus for a chump and trying to get something out of Jesus. Either the rich man knows or he doesn't know. If he doesn't know, then he's ready to be formed and then Jesus can give him this very basic teaching. If he's playing Jesus for a chump, then he's going to pretend that, oh, I need to learn something even though I really do know everything I need to know. I think if you grew up in Minnesota, you are especially well formed to hear this story because the rich young man who has everything to lose, is playing Minnesota nice with Jesus. And Jesus is calling him out. He's calling him out on his BS, essentially. He wants to come to Jesus and be self-effacing and hobnob with this wise teacher and walk away feeling affirmed that he's on the right track. Because that's how people are when they want to keep polite, nice circles. And Jesus just slaps him. Oh, good math teacher. Teach me math. Oh, well, if you want to add fractions, make sure you have a common denominator. So either he knows no math and he needs to learn this very basic lesson about math, or maybe he actually thinks he's ready for the advanced lesson. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Ooh, look at me. So not only does he already know this lesson, he says, I've been doing this lesson perfectly my entire life. I've been 100% on this. Thank you very much. I've done this all. Evidently, the rich man is asking for an advanced lesson. The advanced lesson, Paul explains in Galatians, comes in Deuteronomy that the end of following all these commandments is death. <laughs> Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, 
one thing you lack go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me it's ironic because before he was indignant with the disciples because they weren't getting the very basic teaching which is let people learn the teaching for heaven's sake the children want to learn the teaching let give them the teaching here he feels love for him and he gives him the most difficult possible teaching one that he knows he can't do so understand this that jesus gives a teaching out of love that's impossible to fulfill but at these words because as we hear in galatians the curse of the law is death in deuteronomy ultimately you can't do what the law requires and there are a lengthy list of curses that are applied ultimately the curse is death for those who don't follow the law Jesus is confronting the rich man with Deuteronomy. He's saying, look, yes, you've done everything the Torah requires, but you still are going to die. What the law is really asking of you is to die in a way that serves the law. Not just to die, but to die in a way that fulfills the law, which means to give everything away. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The key here is that Jesus did him a favor. Because if this were a mega church in North America, or any church, I mean, the mega church is just the perfection of the common religion that you find in all of the churches, which is consumerism. People come to church and they find a community the way they shop for an iPhone or an Android. They just want something that they like and makes them feel good and is an extension of their ego. That's what religion is in the United States. And I don't care what denomination, across all denominations, everyone is guilty of consumer religion. That's what secularism is. It's consumer religion. And it's incompatible with teaching. Because when you teach, you actually are giving somebody bad news because the truth is bad news. The truth is that drinking Pepsi will not make you live forever. And that having an iPhone doesn't make you smarter than everybody else. The truth is you're going to die. And the question that truth confronts you with is what are you going to do about your death and with your death for the sake of others? What are you going to die for? And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God! The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? He's now calling the disciples children. So the whole section is inviting the disciples and the rich man to humble themselves and become disciples, become children. But they have to be ready to follow the lessons that Jesus lays out. The disciples didn't think that the children were ready for the lessons that Jesus was teaching, so they prevented them from coming. Now when Jesus smacks them with the reality of his teaching, the disciples don't want to be around for the rest of the teaching, just like the rich man wants to walk away sad. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And here there's some old legend that, well, Father Mark, you see, the eye of the needle was actually a small door in the gate of the city. Have you seen a small door in the gate of the city? Do you really think it's possible for a camel to fit through a small door? It is not possible. It is not possible. 
you cannot justify the fact that you want to make tons of money and still have the priest give you communion. It doesn't work. The fruit of that lie is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. They are the ultimate expression of your consumerism. They exist because you worship money. Jesus takes the most impossible situation he can come up with, and he says, that's even easier than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich man doesn't just have to make himself unrich by giving away all of his stuff. Now, people will take it in the context of this previous thing and say, oh, well, if the rich man had just given up all his stuff, then he could have had the kingdom of heaven. But because he wanted to keep all his stuff, he wasn't able to enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying, though, even deeper than that, is that the true student of the kingdom has to be willing to take the teaching to its logical end. And once you go farther in this passage, you'll see that Jesus then talks about his crucifixion right after this. Are you able, are you willing to take this teaching to its logical end, which is your death? Then they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now you have to hear this verse in context of the crucifixion. Because what's possible with God is the crucifixion. It is conquering the power of death by death. It's conquering the power of human victory with loss, which is God's victory. Which means that Jesus has hope that this young man could yet submit to the cross. The only thing that can save the rich man is the teaching. Jesus will always side with the teaching and he will always have hope that the teaching can convert even the rich who are unsavable. Jesus is not saying that God can do a magic trick. He's saying that God can open someone's heart to the teaching the way he does in Zechariah when he pours his spirit out and suddenly Israel realizes that they're the bad guy. That's what Jesus is saying. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, this is always the interesting thing because people love that they're going to get a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. Oh, wow, you get all this stuff, oh, along with persecutions. I've never heard someone put an emphasis on, oh, yeah, you can give up all this stuff and you'll get persecutions if you do so. What he's saying is, this is what biblical faith is. You're going to live your life like everybody else, but in your case, you're going to choose to be persecuted for the cause of the gospel. That's the difference. If you're not being persecuted then you're not receiving the blessing of the gospel. That's what he's saying. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter was so excited that he had given up so much. And then Jesus affirmed, yes, people who gave up much will receive much. However, Peter, the first will be last and the last first. So don't set yourself up on a pedestal, Peter, and assume that you're going to be the first walking into the kingdom because of the virtue you had. Because as we've seen through this whole chapter, it's not, do you have virtue? It's, 
Are you obedient even to the cross? Like little children. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.